Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A thousand years of monastic life in Britain was brought, suddenly, to an end in the reign of Henry VIII. Over four years, some 800 houses were closed, and something like 12,000 monks, nuns and friars were redeployed. It was the greatest dislocation of people, property and daily life since the Norman Conquest. And yet, it can be remarkably difficult to trace what happened next. The ruins on our landscape today create the impression of dramatic change. And yet the buildings, their contents and their residents were not suddenly swept away. Drawing on the scattered evidence of the archive, today's guest has another story to tell about the end of monasticism and its immediate effects. He is Professor James G. Clarke, Professor of History at the University of Exeter, who has published widely on monasteries, religious life and culture in medieval and Reformation England. He has been a historical consultant on TV documentaries and dramas like Tudor Monastery Farm and The White Queen. And his masterpiece, The Dissolution of the Monasteries, A New History, was published in 2021 by Yale University Press. Professor Clark, it is a great pleasure to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. I loved your book, which is an extraordinary piece of writing. It is based on such an impressive amount of work, and it is a very, very good read. I recommend it to everybody. I think I first of all want to ask you, however did you achieve a piece of research of this scale? Thank you, first of all, but by spending an inordinate amount of time working on it, As they say in my household, I've been kicking the habit for a very long time. And my daughters were still being pushed around in pushchairs when I started work. And one of them is in her first year of undergraduate study now. So yes, that's how you write a long book by taking a very long time, I think. But it's a reflection of the scale of the subject, the scale of the transformation that I'm trying to trace here. Because we have a thousand years of monastic history in England, and it's the last moments of that history that is the least well documented. So it becomes a kind of archaeological task. 
I found having to think really laterally about what might two or three or more degrees of separation be conjured up into a source that might provide a distant sort of echo for what's happening. And I think that's what made it not just a trial, but a really rewarding journey, because quite a lot of what I think I brought out was pretty hard won, actually. I particularly would like to focus on something you mentioned, which is the transformation, the effects and impact of the dissolution, because that seems to me so important and yet quite hard to grasp, actually. And there's so much we don't know, at least we haven't known, and you've started to change that in very important ways. I suppose the first and most obvious thing is the fabric of the monasteries. How much and how quickly were they destroyed or Despoiled. You give the example of Merton Abbey, actually near to where I grew up, where the abbey was demolished very quickly. In Merton's case, you say it was within eight weeks of its suppression in April 1538 to supply building materials for the site of the new palace at Nonsuch. But was this a standard model? No, destruction and demolition in a matter of weeks or months is the exception to the rule. I think in understanding the dissolution, we have to make a distinction between people and activities and fabric and places. People and activities change in the course of the same day. People begin the day clothed as religious men and women and end the day as not. And their activities are brought to a defined end. But the physical environment is something that is a negotiated end that unfolds over generations. If there was a moment at which people in pretty much every neighbourhood would be noticing the taking down of medieval monastery buildings, it wasn't in 1538 or even in 1540 or even over the years that followed in the 1540s. Probably, I would have said, the time when in pretty much every region of the country everybody was talking about it and noticing it would have been the 1580s, 1590s. That's when it's really noticeable. That's actually when the proprietors of some of those great abbey sites actually start finally. And they're often the third or fourth proprietor from the time that the place was closed as an abbey. That's when they actually begin to remodel those buildings. It's the second or third or fourth generation who've got the money and the will to do that work. So the sites that are transformed when the monastic life of those places was still a living memory are few and far between. And I suspect that that's at the heart of the problem of the dissolution, that those who live through it are not sure how to process it, because it's a change that is most palpable in a way behind closed doors. The closed doors they can see are the closed doors they saw 10 or 15 years ago, which are still there. Behind those closed doors, yes, it's changed beyond recognition. But the template is much the same. We're tempted when we see ruined abbeys into thinking that dissolution, as the word implies, means sudden, severe, act of savage suppression, the tearing down of something. But this is one of those instances where it is just straightforwardly a misnomer. So actually what we're thinking about a lot of the time is not so much ruin but sheer abandonment. But also, I guess another possibility was reuse of the spaces. Did that happen very much? The use of the church spaces as places of worship going forward is widespread. But of course, in a way, that's not conversion. It's continuity rather than conversion, because we have to remember that so many neighbourhoods would have worshipped 
in a church either directly ministered by monastics or under the jurisdiction of them. So their place of worship before the mid-1530s may well have been a parish that stood on the edge of or in the precinct of the monastery, or was simply the parochial chapel attached to the nave of a great abbey church. Many of those places of worship survive. The conversion that is much slower in coming than I think we presume is the transformation of the space into a domestic space. There are a handful of, I suppose, keynote conversions, but they're not typical. Many of those who lived on into the latter part of Henry's reign and into the middle of the Tudor period would have known these buildings standing empty for a very long time. They would have seemed... I suppose much like in our own day, the way that we look on commercial retail sites which have been abandoned in one or other recession and nothing has come along to replace them. So you see fabric that is looking pretty sorry for itself and showing all of the signs of dereliction and a certain amount of vandal activity, but no other purpose has come to reclaim it. And that process is incredibly slow. What about the content of the monasteries? You know, their treasures, their wine cellars, their libraries and their livestock. Yes, for want of a better description, there is a comprehensive garage sale of monastery contents. Of those contents, there's a huge variation in the excitement that they generate in the neighbourhood and in the society. There is a very rapid and determined and a very sort of commercial scramble for the dry stores, so the grain that is stored and the other foodstuffs, to the point that you get letters from the commissioners recording that they are delighted to have recovered various stocks of dried fish from the monastery stores and extraordinary letters back to Cromwell telling him of the ling that had been recovered. I'm sure Cromwell was delighted to get these not very palatable dried fish recovered for the crown and then for sale. Livestock is sold to the point that we get a rather poignant picture of what was not saleable in the precincts of a monastery. Whatever else we might think about early Tudor religious men and women, what we can be sure about is they really did stick to the tradition of not riding fine horses, but putting up with palfreys. So the lowest of the tiers of horse that was available. And nobody seems to want to buy these old nags. I can imagine, sadly, what fate might have awaited some of those palfreys. So they find a rather sorry collection of remaining livestock, but there is a very organised effort to disperse food stores and live stock as much as possible, except where the monastic community confounds them. Famously at the Trinitarian House of Ingham in Norfolk, we get what is a bit like the script for a 1950s Ealing comedy, where the commissioners arrive only to find the livestock's already been sold. And they ask around in the neighbourhood, and there's a conspiracy of silence, which at a distance of 450 years is really comic, because they're looking for the livestock, and they run into some sort of wiseacre who says, well, they were there last time I saw them, and they've gone, because they've just been rounded up and sold. That kind of stock, the crown does its best mostly to disperse. Furnishings, fixtures and fittings are very varied. There is a scramble for church vestments because of all of the material that is recycled first and foremost and most widely out of pre-Reformation churches, it's not the buildings, it's the vestments. And 
High society in mid-Tudor England can't get enough of medieval vestments. Fine copes and their orphreys and altar hangings, which they recycle. If you visit Hardwick Hall, famously the wonderful late Tudor interior of Bess of Hardwick, who among her many husbands was William Cavendish, one of Cromwell's dissolution commissioners, you will find that Bess owns really probably the very best surviving collection of medieval church vestments, which come out of monastery sales. And Sir William himself buys vestments. He cherry picks them at Lillishall Abbey in Shropshire. Sir William is paying pounds for vestments. And he's just one of a number of members of elite Tudor society who are queuing up to buy vestments. Henry VIII himself has clearly, particularly towards the end of the dissolution process, he's clearly directed commissioners to cherry pick the very finest vestments. Some are being used again as vestments, and it really challenges our assumption that Cromwellian commissioners are all proto-Protestants, because some of the most notorious of them, exchanging letters with each other saying, please find me some copes. I want them for my home parish church. These are not men who want their clergy soberly dressed. They want them wearing the finest copes. Henry secures huge numbers of vestments, and in those inventories, we have a number of descriptions of vestments which have clearly come out of monasteries. Books, it's much more of a mixed picture. The commissioners I found are often expressly saying that the members of the religious communities can take books with them. There's also a certain amount of preemptive action around books. So books are assigned to individuals by their monastery superior in the days and weeks before the end. And that clearly is preemptive. It's a way of ensuring that books can be carried out of the monastery and not go to the crown. But the commissioners are touched by the same sort of disparagement of medieval books that we see in lots of contexts in the 1530s and 40s. Famously, when they visit the university colleges in 1535, they amuse themselves by tossing copies of Scotus's philosophy out of the windows. Brings a sort of shudder to you, doesn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd be running around the quad gathering them up. But this is not an anti-monastic behaviour. It's a rejection of an old mode of learning. And so much of the time they are reporting there were no books of any value. Now, again, that makes me blanch. Of course there were books of value, but not value enough to be sold. They do sell the books for religious worship. So missals, psalters, etc. are sold. But I think, again, a bit like buildings, that we have to assume that the buildings don't disappear overnight. The fact that we have such a tiny proportion of books out of monastery libraries surviving today, famously it was said by a great medieval scholar of books that for every one that survives another 20 has been lost. We probably know now more about books to say the proportion is even greater, that probably we've lost 30 or more for every one that survives. But that process of loss is very gradual. I strongly suspect that in the time of John Stowe, the great historian of London, in Elizabeth's reign, that there were a great many more monastic books still in circulation than we know about today. So with each passing generation, more books are lost. So it is a mixed picture, and it tells us a lot about the mentality of the elite society that preside over the dissolution, that there's a good deal of the contents that they want to hold on to. 
so much perhaps for the buildings and the stuff. Let's talk about the people and the activities, the other part of monastic life. And I've always wondered about what happened to the monks and friars and nuns after the dissolution, how many there were, you know, who suddenly at some point between 1536 and 1540 experienced this sudden cessation of their way of life, what you so cleverly called changes of habit, and what they did next. Maybe we should start by talking about the sort of first wave, those whose communities were closed at the very beginning of the process in 1536-37? Yeah, those who are in the smaller monasteries that are shut down, and those who also, even the year before, during the king's visitation, who are forced out because they are below the age of 24, or they are deemed to be too elderly. The short answer is that we don't know person by person what happens to them. They are the most difficult to find of all because they leave no administrative record because most of them don't receive pensions, which is the best way of following these people into the later 1540s and 50s. Some of the men in that first wave show up because we know that they then do go on to serve as parish or chantry priests, but it's only a minority. I think we have to have a working assumption with that first wave that more than we can possibly document of them actually find a place at another monastery that is continuing. My impression is that just from the responses they give the king's commissioners, that a higher proportion of women choose to continue than men. Now, that's not to suggest that women have somehow a stronger vocation than men. It's, of course, that men have more opportunities outside of the religious life than women do. One of the striking things with the women, both in that first wave and subsequently, is how much they don't want to return to family life and how they are quite prepared to live apart from family. I hope we can finally discard the idea that mid-Tudor women, whether they've lived in a monastery or not, simply default to a kind of familial authority at the dissolution. They simply don't. So many of them choose to live separately, independently. What's most fascinating about the women in each stage of the dissolution is how many of them over time cleave together in a small social network of fellow former religious women. And by the mid-1540s into the early 1550s, we have a number of created households of former religious women. Households that, of course, we'd love to know more about than we do, and often they're only traceable through the wills that they then subsequently leave. That expression of the continuing bond of community or fraternity is a really striking feature of how many of them do go on to live, that they are continuing to maintain an attachment to the idea of the community and the communal life, even if they are able to detach themselves from the institutional life that they were part of. By the time that we are seeing large numbers leave as monasteries are surrendered and forcibly closed at the very end of the 1530s and into the 1540s. I think what's first most striking is that nothing happens very quickly. There is no sudden shift to a new mode of life. The men have the opportunity, of course, to join the secular clergy, that is clergy in institutional churches, chantry priests or parish priests or even bishops. But there isn't a sudden flooding of those positions. In fact, it is really only in the later 1540s that we start to see large numbers of former monks and friars occupying those roles. It almost seems a recognisable moment that after four or five years of living pensioned but unoccupied, go looking for a church position. Perhaps that is the case. I think we have to remember that we're dealing with the full spectrum of 
ages. There is a world of difference between the individual man or woman sent out from a closed monastery who's in their sixth or seventh decade of life and those who are in their early 20s. And what I found in the course of working on the book is that wide generational spread is still a feature of life in monasteries in early Tudor England as much as it ever had been. And we know, fortunately, because some lists of men and women in these houses and their ages do survive, we know that for both male and female communities, it really is a mix. There are young women of 17 or 18 in communities where there are women nearly 80. Those who are at the younger end, of course, their experience of monastery life has been very limited and very brief. And those are the ones who we see most absorbing the full range of experiences of the life of the laity in Tudor England. So I've come across a novice from Worcestershire who is one of the first monks that I've come across ex-monks who's documented as marrying. Now, he had never been ordained as a priest. He was still only a novice at the time of the closure of his monastery. That seems very unsurprising that his monastic ties are very limited. And it's the women typically at the younger end of the age range who, when marriage becomes possible for former nuns, are those who marry. But as a general rule across the age range, the impression that I've taken from the sources is that the majority hold on to more of the features of their old life than they do take hold of features of the life in the world. So they maintain their affective, fraternal ties. They stay very closely oriented to place. They don't move widely across the country. The men often hold on to their own titles. It's not uncommon to find the will of a former monk as late as the end of Mary's reign, beginning of Elizabeth's reign, who still describe themselves as a one-time prior or one-time cellarer. So for those who've lived more than a decade in these places, inevitably they're marked by it. Caesar, Brutus, Mark Antony, their characters alone are enough for a melodrama. But what actually happened on the Ides of March? How much of it have Shakespeare and his contemporaries got right? And how much of it have they got wrong? And what followed? What happened next following the assassination of Julius Caesar? Will this March on the Ancients from history hit? We're going to find out. Join us every Sunday for all things Ides of March and more. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you'll want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. ask about sources because you've mentioned the receipts of pensions and that's obviously been very important in terms of tracking where people moved and geography. What other sort of sources can give us an insight and how have you in the face of much absence of such sources found a way to glean information about what happened next? A good way of capturing people in the record is to gravitate towards when things go wrong. So I find legal disputes are a very good way of catching hold of these people. And every time I do in court records, so it might be generally the chancery records running through the middle of Tudor England, and you find these wonderful little, they're like a short story, I found a monk who had returned to live, and we only know about this because of a dispute over what happened to the non-payment of the pension. And it all comes out in court, as it always does, that he had gone to live with his married sister in Oxford. And the sister persuades her brother that her husband, the brother-in-law, will go and fetch the pension. And you can imagine what's coming next. The monk never gets the pension. And the sister, after years of being ruled over by the distinguished elder brother who was a member of a fine monastery, gets her own back. And the brother-in-law, her husband, disappears with the pension money. And it ends up in court. He's having to take action against his own sister, who has clearly, in return for giving a home to her brother, she's defrauding him in front of his eyes, in plain sight. It's cases like that, that in the half-light of Q, you punch the air and say, thank you, God, it's my birthday, because you found exactly what you've been looking for. So yeah, legal records are, historians have known always that these are a fantastic way of catching hold of people. And they're a good corrective because the pension records, like any financial record, they mask so much of the reality. Not least the fact that what the Court of Augmentations records about the regularity of pension payments doesn't necessarily correspond to the money that actually reached the saddlebag of an individual out there in provincial England. Most monks and nuns are in arrears on their pension. And some of those arrears run over a year and a half, two years. And for the women especially who typically have got low value pensions, sort of pensions below the level of about four or five pounds per year, then those long periods of arrears must have put them in very straightened circumstances. I think it's true to say that probably a typical income for the lowest level of priest in 
1530s, 1540s England might be an income of about five or six pounds a year. Many male and female religious are receiving only what you might call a sort of entry level clerical salary as their pension. And if you're missing two or three installments of that, then you're pushed even further down. That's very interesting. Now, the effect isn't just on the monks and the nuns and the friars. It's also on this whole attendant community of staff and lay people and those they looked after, felons who have taken sanctuary or children who are being educated or the incapacitated poor and even the wider community in terms of the commercial trade. If it's hard to trace the monks and nuns, is it even harder to trace what happened to them? Some of them, yes, it is. They tend to step out of the shadows when they've got a bone to pick with the government. So I quite like the record I found of the monastery barber who shows up at augmentations in about 1541 with a very long bill for shaving monks, which is more than two years out of date now and unpaid. Sometimes, wonderfully, these people do step out and complain that they have a debt that remains unpaid. You've got those who are part of the provisioning process of monasteries as well. We would all like to know, I think, more about those who are resident within the precincts of a monastery, but are not part of the monastic community and are not members of staff, but who are, I suppose, the sort of hangers-on, the kind of people who've washed up into a monastery precinct, the relics of some old monastic officer who's long since died. So there seem to be, I've come across references occasionally, the wives of schoolmasters. And the monastery had generously allowed the wife to live on in the schoolmaster's house after his death. What happens to them? We don't really know. Where those people had some sort of right to something however small in the monastery, such as they had been assigned a residence built into the precinct wall or something, then you can trace them because in many cases they are granted something. It might be an absolutely tiny payment, but they are granted something. But I'd love to know, at St Albans Abbey, it's closed in December 1539, there are several scullion boys in the kitchen. What happens to them? It would be lovely to know. They're not entitled to anything. They would have come into the precinct every morning. They would have worked in the kitchen. They would have never been outside of the kitchen. What happens to them? They go and look for other work. But they're still touched by this dissolution process. The employees, the hangers-on, the leftovers, living by charity in the precinct of the monastery, they are turned out with very little. And it's only the more determined of them who try and pursue the Tudor regime for a scrap of something in the years that follow. And I suppose there's also this sense that a consequence is the closure of the source of social welfare, those grammar schools that have been founded and funded by the monasteries, and of course, you know, 800 churches that are permanently closed. Absolutely. And I don't think that we've yet done enough to bring those into focus, partly because of such a strong narrative from other Reformation historians reminding us just how important other institutions in Tudor neighbourhoods are, the parish church, but also the burgeoning civic government and civic institutions. And yes, and yes, they are becoming more important. But up to the end of the 1530s, they haven't displaced in many different neighbourhoods the facilities that were available through monastery precincts. I think what we need to do to flesh those out in the scene is to acknowledge that it's not just a matter of saying monasteries were providing schools. 
they were providing some very limited medical care. Because you can always argue that, ah, yes, but there were independent grammar schools as well, and there were many more hospital-type institutions that had nothing to do with monasteries, and that's true. But it's the other kind of facilities that are less eye-catching and certainly less institutional that were still so important. Apart from anything else, I think I use the word precinct a lot because I want people to understand the scale of these sites relative to the neighbourhood around them. That even a friary, the poorest friary, might occupy a site of 12, 16, 18 acres. Now, that might not sound a lot, but in any middle-sized provincial town in Britain, even today, if you carve up 16 acres in the middle of that space, that's a big space. And it was a space offering facilities of a huge variety. So you will have tenements that are rented out, residential housing that is available on the open market to tenants. You will have working buildings that are available on the open market to be rented by anyone stepping forward to rent them. And you will have working land within that precinct that is available to people to rent and to use. It might be an orchard, it might be even some pasture. So this is space that is fuel to local economies and their society. Some people will count on that space for their residential occupation. Some will count on it for their livelihood. And when that is sequestered by the Crown and not available, then a lot of these premises on the edge of monastery and friary precincts then stand empty for a number of years. And so you've taken out of the local economy a major component that keeps the machine working. I suppose we ought to, however, talk about the beneficiaries as well, because there were some people for whom this wasn't a story of loss. It was a story of gain. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about them, if you would. There's no doubt that we have to bring into the picture those who profit enormously, as long as we accept that the person who doesn't profit nearly as much as they might have done is, of course, Henry. There is such a sequence of missteps that the benefits and the material profits don't come his way in anything like the form that they might have done. Before you go on, do tell me what those missteps were, because that's fascinating. I've always understood that Henry enriches himself enormously, but you're saying that this is actually a small fraction of what he could potentially have received. It is. So the cash windfall is only a fraction of what he might have had for a variety of reasons. So if there had been less active and passive resistance to ensure that treasures that could have been sold, raw materials, building materials could have been sold more effectively so that their market value is fully realised and fewer monasteries and their neighbourhoods had been as successful as they were in actually concealing away quite a lot of this. If that hadn't happened, then yes, Henry would have had the most extraordinary dividend. He only gets a sort of slight reflection of what that might have been he then is preparing for war and putting up those blockhouses around the coast that he's doing in 1514, 1541 is seriously expensive. And raising those numbers of troops again over the course of those two years is costly because this is still not early modern army. These are still being raised by the political nation in just the same way that Henry V raised his armies. And it's costly. So it is something of a money in, money out situation in terms of cash for Henry. 
It's already becoming clear, I think, even before the last monastery is closed, that the only way to manage this is actually to respond pretty open-handedly to the pressure from landed society to actually grant them what they've been begging for, in many cases, since about 1535. Henry doesn't hold on to absolutely every property that comes his way by any means. He is having to buy at least detached acceptance from the political nation. The other obvious point, though, which isn't often enough spoken, perhaps because it's almost too obvious, but at the beginning of Henry's reign, his taxation take from the church is his single largest tax benefit from his kingdom. As a result of the dissolution, of course, he's dramatically diminished the taxable wealth of the church. So going forward, any clerical subsidy is going to return something much, much more meagre. And by the end of his reign, it's a tiny fraction. Given that, as his father, I think, would have told him, it's not your financial position in the immediate term that matters, but it's your financial position in the long term. The king must live of his own permanently, not year by year, flying by the seat of your pants. And Henry VII had just about done that, but he breaks even when he dies. And if he'd spent everything he'd planned to on Westminster Abbey, he wouldn't have broken even probably. But Henry's long-term position is very diminished by the dissolution. So those who benefit first and foremost are those who are really the principal stakeholders of monastic England already. So again, there are not new men suddenly appearing out of nowhere to profit from monasteries and then soar in a meteoric way into a public profile. Most of those who benefit in the first wave of crown grants of monastery property in the later 1530s and into the 1540s are those who were already stakeholders. In other words, they held the stewardships of monasteries. So they were the chief secular officer of these monasteries who presided over the management of their property affairs anyway. They were also stakeholders in the sense of having inherited the status of patron of these monasteries. So they had a familial connection, a genealogical connection, if you like, with whoever back in the high Middle Ages had founded these monasteries. So they were inherently the stakeholders. And they are, time and again, preferred amongst those who are petitioning the crown. Please let me have this bit of property or that monastic site. Time and again, the crown prefers those who are already known quantities in relation to institutions. And that, again, is a political judgment, isn't it, clearly, that particularly after the events of 1536 and 1537, there isn't a gratuitous stomach for upsetting provincial England in Westminster. Not at all. And so Henry is inclined to let those who've always had a stake in monastic foundations, hold that stake, but just under a different guise. Some of those who are agents of the dissolution, I mentioned Sir William Cavendish earlier, one of uh, Bess of Hardwick's husbands. People like that, if there are men who derive a certain kind of motive power from the dissolution, it's men like that. They were already somebody, and you could say that their trajectory was already quite well defined. But there's no doubt that dissolution grants 
move them up a gear or two in their trajectory. It's interesting because broadly, perhaps there are two kinds of Cromwellian agent. There are men like Cavendish who are gentry, already property owning, already trying to get closer and closer to the Tudor government. And then there are the professionals, the lawyers, who are trying to raise their social status, maybe even be ennobled eventually through service to the Tudor regime. Interestingly, it is the gentry, I would say, who win. So many of those lawyers, perhaps they are still shut out because they crucially lack that status. These are not armigerous men. Their only status is their professional skill and their sort of CV of handling government business in the recent past. And so many of them, it was interesting to find just how many of them actually fall foul of the Tudor regime before they have that chance to profit. And we have dissolution commissioners who, by the early 1540s, facing sort of humiliation and ignominy. And very satisfyingly, the completely loathsome Thomas Lee, whose career, really, he never gets the property that he's really hoping for, despite constant bending Cromwell's ear that, you know, but he never gets what he's hoping for, and is a lost figure at the end of his life. And John London, the ex-warden of New College, another one. There does seem to be a sense in which those men who were critical to delivering the dissolution, but it doesn't pay to them in the way it does the gentry, I've got one last question to ask you, which comes back to your experience, I suppose, of writing this. Because it seems to me that in handling this material for the best part of a couple of decades, you've been writing about loss and you've been dealing with tales of avarice. And I wonder how you have dealt with that really personally to encounter this great sense of devastation and to experience some of the worst of human behaviour in how this has been dealt with in Henry VIII's reign. After 20 years or so in academic life, my capacity to deal with guile, with the impulse to stab each other in the front and so on means that I've probably got quite a high threshold. But yeah, It's an extraordinary spectacle. I don't feel that it leaves me with a kind of emotional response. I'm fascinated by it because there is so much light and shade. I'm drawn to moments of not just low base behaviour, but high comedy as well. And I actually found myself feeling increasingly heartened by the fact that out of all of this change there is a fair amount of continuity that we are drawn in our historical narratives to focusing on turning points, on moments of dramatic change, on revolutions, and we organise the way we teach history to students in that way, and on we go. So we constantly reinforce contingency and upheaval. But there's an incredibly heartening counter-narrative emerging from the story of the dissolution, which is that people and places and the built environment and the cultural environment is incredibly resilient. And I'm drawn to the brass in a Sussex church or the book from Stixwold in Lincolnshire, which go through this moment of great drama and come out the other side intact. And we find ways of holding on to things and people and lives and identities. There's something incredibly reassuring, I think, about the men and women who, 30 years after they went through this, remember the friends and colleagues who were part of their life three decades previously. So I think this is a story of what endures, not how things fall apart. Yes, and it is that perspective, I think, that explains why you have been the perfect chronicler 
no offence intended, of this extraordinary period of history and that eye for detail and for seeing the story in all sorts of places and bringing them together and doing this kind of forensic investigation that explains why this work is so magnificent. Thank you so much for talking to me about this one small part of what you've investigated when it comes to the dissolution, thinking about the impact. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.